Well, okay, folks, we are going to get started. Um, hopefully your bellies aren't so full that you are ready to take a nap. Um, that happened this afternoon, right? Um, you have a good lunch right around 2, 1.30, 2 o'clock, maybe 2.30 is when the sleepy hits. Um, and it doesn't matter where you are, what you're doing. If you sit down, you want to fall asleep. So hopefully we're way past that. Um, Chick-fil-A is, is fuel for a strong mind and, and good attentiveness. Um, and so, uh, yeah, let's, let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we're going to go all the way through chapter 4, verse 5, Lord willing. So all of chapter 3 and then the first five verses of chapter 4. Um, I'm going to ask Scott to read this passage a little bit longer. Jerry's going to pray, then we'll make some introductory comments, kind of review where we've been, and then uh, get started um, in the text. So, Scott, will you read uh, chapter 3 all the way through chapter 4, verse 5? Okay, 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And let's pray. Thanks, Scott. Gracious Father, um, we are so thankful for your word tonight. What a, a great um, passage that convinces us um, of um, the importance and the sufficiency of Scripture. Lord, we pray tonight that we would leave more thrilled than ever before with who you are, with what you've done, and especially that you have given us um, all we need for life and godliness through your Son and through your Word. And Lord, we commit this night to you. I really thank you for uh, everyone here that they would invest uh, this time um, in order to um, fellowship with their uh, other believers and also to um, invest this time in, in your word, which we know will never return void. We commit the time to you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, all right, guys, a uh, quick review over where we've been. Second uh, Timothy, you know, like we've said before, is Paul's final letter. Uh, he knows his life is about to end. Uh, he had a, a previous imprisonment in which he was released from prison. He knows that is not going to happen this time. He knows he is about to get his head chopped off. Um, he's going to be put to death by Emperor Nero um, because he continues to preach the gospel. And so 
2 Timothy is kind of like his last will and testament in terms of uh, encouraging Timothy to persevere in the gospel, to persevere in the truth, to persevere in preaching. Uh, chapter 1, uh, you remember Paul introduces himself. He's thanking God um, whom he knows he serves. Um, and he, he recalls Timothy's faith, uh, a faith that he saw in Timothy's mother and Timothy's grandmother. Uh, he recalls Timothy's spiritual gifting. And remember we talked about, uh, he told Timothy to, to rekindle his spiritual gift, to fan it back into flame. Uh, you know, and all of us, when we think about the way God has gifted us, we have to keep our gifts in use um, and in practice. Otherwise, we kind of, we, we get out of shape spiritually with our gifts. It's like you get an ember further from the flame, it starts to cool off. You got to get it back close to the flame. You got to fan it to get it hot again. Um, Paul is exhorting Timothy, don't let your spiritual gift die out. Don't let it um, cool off. Keep it hot. Um, he reminds us in chapter 1 uh, how God planned our salvation from before the beginning of the world that brought it to light in history through Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, he calls us, verse 14, Timothy especially, but everyone else after Timothy to guard the good deposit, referring to the gospel. The good deposit is the gospel that we have, the good news of our salvation. Uh, Paul relates people who have turned away from him. And then in chapter 2, he uh, speaks of being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, meaning grace is, is in one sense, it's the undeserved favor that we need from God and that God delights to give, but it's also uh, that favor that empowers us for ministry. So grace is both favor and power, if you want to think about it that way. Um, and we talked about how there's this infinite storehouse of grace that God has for his people that never runs out. So he is never lacking in, in any ability to strengthen us when we need it. Uh, he gave several um, analogies about the Christian ministry, and we could say the Christian life, the being a soldier, being an athlete, being a farmer. Um, and then verse 7, which we love, where Paul says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. And so, yeah, God's the one who ultimately gives the understanding, but he does it through our hard thinking. Um, so Christianity is not opposed to a rigorous use of our mental abilities. Uh, we looked at last week how Paul has a very clear doctrine of election, but also how that doctrine of election moves him to evangelism because he says in verse 10 that he endures everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. So yes, sovereignty of God and salvation, passionate evangelist, uh, trying to win as many as he can, knowing that God will call those whom he's chosen. Um, moving on, uh, verse 14, uh, reminding, telling Timothy to remind the people in the church of these things, um, of the truths of the gospel and the things Paul's been saying, and not to quarrel about words only leads to bad things. Verse 15 is a key one. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Is that me or you? I think it's me. Okay. Um, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And again, rightly handling just refers to cutting a straight path, not a crooked path. And that matters because he's going to talk about some people who've swerved from the truth, meaning they've gotten off the straight path. Um, and so when we handle the word of God, we want to be as faithful to the word of God as God has given it to us. We don't want to get creative. We don't want to try to change it. We don't want to improve on it. We just want to be faithful to, to read it, to understand it, to explain it and apply it in light of how God gave it. Um, to us. Let's see, moving on. He mentions, actually, sometimes you have to mention people by name. And he mentions two, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who, again, have swerved from the truth. And they were teaching an absolutely atrociously bad doctrine that the resurrection had already happened. Um, and that, as Paul said, was upsetting, overthrowing the faith of some. But again, God knows who, who's our, those who belong to him um, use the illustration of uh, honorable vessel, uh, a vessel for honorable use, a vessel for dishonorable. And the exhortation to us is that we need to cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable. Why? Because we can be useful to God. Um, and I, again, that's something I think we need to stress. We, you know, God uses us because he has saved us, um, but we should also want to be useful to him. And the way we know we can be useful to God is if we are 
turning away from sin, turning away from the, the pleasures of the world and the things the world pursues and focusing on Christ and making Christ our number one priority, you know, spending time in the word, in prayer, trying to become more like Jesus. When we do that, God sees us as useful and he will use us. And then we, we finished with the exhortation to Timothy, you know, to continue to speak the truth, but to speak it in a very particular way, uh, again, especially in relation to the opponents, those who would embrace false teaching. Verse 24, or the end of verse 24, it says, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, because God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And I want to, I want to end with verse 26, because again, one of the things we, we have to be very careful to do when we read um, in our Bibles is sometimes we just need to not see chapter divisions. We don't need to see verse divisions. We don't need to see chapter divisions because in our mind, we see the end of chapter two and we think, stop. Okay, we get to chapter three. Let's start an entirely new train of thought when in reality, the way Paul wrote this, verse 26 flows directly into chapter three, verse one. And so we've got to train ourselves to do that so that we catch the flow because we ended on a somewhat optimistic note in terms of the fact that some people who are ensnared in false teaching can actually come back to the truth. And we need to pray for that. We need to labor for that. But, and that's interesting how chapter three, verse one begins. So in light of the fact that some may be freed from the devil's lies and brought back to the truth, Paul starts with, but understand this. And where I think he's going to go in light of this, this an, an amazing nine verses here is a simple fact that, yes, some, some may come back to the truth, but there are many who are not. And we need to be ready for that fact. People that we may have known, respected, listened to, shared the Bible with, they may depart from the truth and many of them will never come back. That is a sobering and a sad reality that we have to be ready to face because if we're not ready for that, when it happens, it will upset our faith. We need to set it as truth that this is what God said. So let's work through chapter three, starting in verse one. Understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Um, John Stott actually had a whole section on this where he talked about this times of difficulty, this time of stress. It's, it's a very intense word, um, a, a very intense word that deals with like super hard times, very, you know, difficult's just not a strong enough word. We're good. You care if I keep going? Yeah, please. All right. Um, so difficulty, stress, we could say intense difficulty, um, uh, people are, what are we doing? <laughs> we'll, we'll pause. Time out. Thank you, Ian. Thanks, Ian. Y'all, if Ian Webster were not around, most everything would fall apart. So we are incredibly <laughs> thankful for this guy. Um, all right, where was I? In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Um, and so, again, this word for difficulty is, it is a very strong word. And so we just need to understand that whatever the last days is, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. Um, and when it comes to the last days that are going to be difficult, I think based on what Paul is saying here is the last days is actually not just a short time in the future, but the entire time between the first and second coming of Christ. Between the first and second coming of Christ. He inaugurated the last days when he came. When the Messiah came, that was going to bring about the end. It was going to do a lot of things uh, to usher in uh, the end of days, as the Old Testament said. But Jesus came, and so we are in the last days because he has not yet completed um, all that he was, the Messiah is going to do. Um, and so the last days from the first coming of Christ till now. And so what that means is we're living in this time now. Okay, this is applicable to us. And I think another way we can understand that is the simple fact that he's saying this to Timothy and Timothy is supposed to minister in light of the last days, the fact that he's there. All right, comments, y'all say something. I've been talking a lot. Well, I would just say, when you look at this list, this sure does sound like today in many ways, for sure. Scott? 
Yeah, uh, that's exactly what I was thinking too. Uh, it's sort of like Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world. Like the world is constantly trying to press us into its mold. And that's like, this is the world we live in, a world filled with uh, people who are, who are loving self. And what's going on here in, in the, these first verses is it's describing an inverse of love. Uh, where there's supposed to be love for God, and that is gone. And when love for God is gone, other love is going to be filled in, in, in that void, as people said. It's sort of like love for self flows in there where, where love of God is supposed to be. So this is describing this inverse of love in this passage. But one of the things I was thinking of, or Mark actually helped me with this, talking to him on the phone this afternoon, is really this is describing all of us pre-conversion. We all had an inverse of love. We all were lovers of self. And I remember talking to a guy who wasn't a Christian in a very candid moment. He told me, he said, uh, people think I'm a really nice guy, he said, but he said, really, at the, at the bottom of all of my motives is, is self, is what he, was, he told me in just a very candid moment. Everything I'm doing is really for selfish reasons. Well, that was all of us. And uh, Mark reminded me of Titus 3. You can flip over just a page to the right, really. Titus 3, 3, this, this was us. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. There it is, the inverse of love. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So that, that was our condition pre-conversion. We had this inverse of love. But then what happens at the cross of Christ at conversion is this wonderful reversal of loves. But, verse 4 of Titus 3, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, verse 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So at conversion, you have this wonderful change happens. Where there was love of self, now it's replaced with love of God. I think 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us now, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Just a reminder of gospel truth from this passage. This was us. God saved us. Now we have this reversal of love. Now we, we love God. We're compelled by the love of Christ. Not that we're not going to struggle with these things. We, we still will. And I would just add one other thing on, on this list before we're going to get into like avoiding these teachers who are like this. Uh, one commentator just made a really good point. He said, an application from this passage is simple. Read this list. There's 19 things, I think 19 sins here. He said, do nothing that is listed here and root out every attitude listed here. And then he, he said, the key to the passage is first, the prominence of false loves that instructs us to watch our affections and to love God. So it reminded me of Josh Krause, who loves Proverbs 4, uh, 23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So we've got to watch over our, our affections. Our heart can be drawn to these sort of false loves. We need to be very careful. Is my heart being drawn to materialism? Is it being drawn to pleasure, unholy things? And it also reminded me of George Mueller's quote about the first thing we should do every morning, get our souls happy in the Lord. Because when our, when our souls are happy in the Lord, I think our affections are ordered properly. Just, just something to, to get us off in sort of a flyover view there. All right. Thank you. Yeah, good stuff. All right. So if you want kind of a, a, a heading for verses one through nine, you could say it's kind of an exhortation to avoid godless men or godless people. Uh, avoid godless men. Um, and so let's, let's jump into this list. Um, again, uh, yes, this is what we used to be, and by God's grace, we don't go back into this, at least not permanently. Uh, but let's focus on that very first phrase in verse 2 when it says, for people will be lovers of self. Um, it's interesting. I've looked at a, a, a number of, of commentators, and um, a lot of them came down to you know, a more common word. They're going to be narcissistic, totally self-absorbed. Um, you know, In one sense, God tells us in the great commandment to to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so you think about, okay, I want to do for others, um, you know, what's best for them because that's what I do for me. Um, but what Paul's talking about here is a love of self that's completely absent from a love of God. Um, it's like a, 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 an in, a, a total self-absorption, a total self-focus, um, you know, to the exclusion or to the good, to the ex, to excluding good, to other people. So think narcissistic here. Um, look at the next one, lovers of money. I'm getting some of this. John Piper um, actually had a, a list where he kind of had a, a brief like explanation. And, you know, and then what he, what he had to say is, is catching what's here in the text. So lovers of money focuses on materialism, the things that you can have, the things that you can own. Um, you know, it's, it's an absorption with getting stuff. And I think if anything is indicative of the day we live in, it's this I mean, you, you know, COVID's kind of put a, a slowdown on, you know, production of new stuff. Uh, but, you know, even before that, you know, every year you've got a, a new model, 
just when you think you got the latest and the best, guess what? It's already out of date and you need the next latest and best. And so we are surrounded by um, a culture that is constantly encouraging us to desire what we don't have so that we can feel fulfilled when we get it. Um, so that's materialism, lovers of money. Uh, and we see all the stuff that we, that's out there to get and what do we need in order to get it? We need money. Um, we need to remember what Christ said. You cannot, uh, no man can serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other or love the one and hate the other. You cannot serve God and money. Um, so either money will be our God or God will. Uh, moving on, he says proud, which you think of, of what pride does. Pride loves to draw attention to itself, loves to tra- draw attention to what we've done, to who we are, so that we feel even better about ourselves. It, it, it fits with the, the modern psychological emphasis of, you know, inflating the ego. Like it's, it's to be proud. It's, it, you want all the attention to be on you. Sometimes that's explicit. Um, other times you can be more passive aggressive with it, but you still are trying to keep everybody focused on you. Um, arrogant. What does arrogant have to do? It, it's an inflated view of yourself. So it's very closely linked to pride. But when you're arrogant, it's you think you're better than you are. Um, one of the things, I got this from C.J. Mahaney. Sometimes you'll hear me say this when you ask me how I'm doing. And, you know, I, I say it kind of sometimes, it just kind of comes out as a reflex. Other times, like, I'm really genuine when I say it. I'm doing better than I deserve. Um, when we think about what we do deserve from God in light of our sin and, 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 you know, Christ dying in our place, I didn't get what I deserved. Christ got what I deserved. And then um, I got what he deserved, which is God's favor and love and acceptance forever. And so I'm always doing better than I deserve to be. And if we can keep that mindset, I think it undercuts completely arrogance, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. Any thoughts on that before we keep running through the list? Okay, well, let's go on then. Um, abusive. This is an interesting one. We live in a very abusive age, and especially, and we've talked about this um, with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all the other social media platforms. Like, you don't have to be physically violent um, anymore. Like, the, all you have to do is just read a Twitter thread on a controversial subject, and the sheer venom that comes out, the way people treat each other, is just atrociously bad. Um, it is ungodly in every way. Uh, just tearing people down, questioning their humanity, questioning their even, you know, why are you even alive? It'd be better if you weren't here. You know, it's just, that's the, the essence of so much of what goes on on social media today. Um, it's abusive, um, which is verbally hurtful, especially. Another one he says is disobedient to their parents. Now, have, I want to hear your thought, you guys' thoughts on this. Um, it's kind of like Romans 1. It's a little... You look at it and you're a little alarmed that it's in that list. Yeah. Because it's certainly one that we're all guilty of. And um, so that being in there is sort of snuck in there in both the Romans 1 passage, which is a lot the same of that list of vices, Scott. Yeah. No, I mean, Alistair Begg just said, if you're, if you're disobedient to your parents, you're going to struggle with authority in every other area mm. of your life. The sin is going to show up, I think. Yeah. Um, and so it's interesting that, he, that this is in this list of all lists. Because um, disobedience to parents um, is something we are naturally, like you don't have to like be a special class of sinner to do this. We're all come into this world and we disobey. I mean, what's the first, other than your name, one of the first words you hear from your mom and dad is no, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't, you know, don't play with that. Don't touch that. Don't, no, don't. And so I think, Scott, what you said about authority I, I, that could be what he's getting at. Would you, can you develop that a little more? Um, our anti-authority age, by chance? I don't know. I mean, that's all I got on that. I oh, think. that's fine. Sorry. Um, all right. Well, let, let's keep going. We're going. This this list. There's 19 things here, and we're going to do our best not to be stuck on all 19 because we've got a lot more to go. Um, let's see. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful. It's a lack of gratitude in general. Um, you know, you think of the flip of this for us as Christians. We should be grateful. Um, Scott has said that more times um, than I can count, and we need every single reminder of that. Um, let's see, moving on. Unholy, heartless, unappeasable. Um, think, think about unappeasable. It means you, you can't get people to be reasonable. 
Um, you, you can't like have a reasonable discussion such that somebody who is opposed to you for whatever reason um, will actually possibly change their mind. Um, and, and, all you, and I, I don't like to always bring this issue up, but the whole social justice thing, the way that you see the influence of stuff like critical race theory, intersectionality, and all of that on the way people interact with one another, on the way people engage in argument and debate. And folks of that persuasion tend to be unappeasable. They, they've already made their minds up, and, there's no, and in their minds, there's no evidence, there's no facts that can ever turn them from it. Um, and it's just, it's sad to see um, that I've seen these conversations on social media. Again, maybe I spend more time reading these things than I need to, but um, a more recent example is there was a book came out by Greg Thompson and Duke Kwan called something like The Case for Reparations. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but uh, you can probably guess what it's about, why in light of like our racial past in this country, there needs to be Christians, not like there needs to be reparations financially, materially, um, stuff like that. Kevin DeYoung, whom we appreciate, who we like a lot here, wrote a review of the book and, you know, went through it, laid out a very careful set of arguments as to, to why the book was dangerous, why it was troublesome, and in, on these points and these points and these points, you know, trying to raise legitimate concerns for a good discussion and say, okay. And the response was from the authors of the book when they, they wrote a review of his review and they did not engage what he said. They said, well, we're not sure of all the solutions, but everything you said is from a white supremacy standpoint. And so you can't even make an argument. That, that's how they respond. He, in good faith, said, okay, here's my issues. Here's this point, this point, this point, this point, and this point. Um, you know, and this is why I think this is troubling. It seems to conflict with the gospel. It seems to conflict with, with a number of issues. And they just dismissed it. They wouldn't even engage it. They won't, won't, they won't even consider it because, well, he's a white guy. And so automatically he is, you know, arguing from his position of white supremacy and therefore his arguments aren't even valid. Then when we talk about unappeasable, I think that's the type of thing that we're getting at. You can't even have a legitimate argument in which you say, or a debate with issues in which you say, okay, you know, this is an issue. Let's look at the facts. Let's look at the evidence. Let's evaluate. No, it's not even allowed anymore. And that's just one example. It's one that's just out there. It's current. It's one we, we all have to face in different ways. Um, but it's not good to be this way. As Christians, we are people of the truth, and we should not be afraid to examine facts and evidences because we know God is a God of truth, and truth will be vindicated. So we shouldn't be afraid to engage in, in looking at, if someone says, this is an issue, well, let's evaluate it because we don't have to be afraid of the truth. I think people who are unappeasable are afraid of the truth. They love their position more than they love God, more than they love the truth. And I think some of these folks on this are inconsistent, um, but it's still, we don't need to be unappeasable. Um, moving on, just for the sake of time. Um, and please, if, if you have anything on any of these while I'm going, please stop me. Um, slanderous, without self-control, um, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. And here I think he kind of gets down to it. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I think, Scott, you touched on this, uh, kind of introing this. Verse 2, lovers of self come all the way down to the opposite of that. They're not lovers of God. Like that, I think, is the root. That's where it goes in Romans chapter 1. Um, they wouldn't, or Romans 3, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Here, the reason why they engage in all these things is because they have no love for God. Go ahead, Scott. Yeah, uh, I, again, I'm thinking big picture again on, on this list, and uh, quoting again from this commentary that I read, he said, sort of after going through that list, let us guard our hearts and cultivate the love that God has granted his children. And then he, he said this, he said, let's create a countercultural community together, which to me, that's the church. Like, this is the, the world in which we live in, and, and the world is trying to press us into its mold, filled with this type of thing where we're going to be, we could be drawn to this stuff, 
uh, like, like materialism or whatever it is. You've got to have the, the latest and the best. But in the church, we should be cultivating this kind of countercultural community, which I think that's what, exactly what the church is, which is filled with people who have a deep love for God and love for each other, a counterculture community, which is a great way to foster uh, this love and fight against the things on this list. Yeah, and summed up there, pride, you know, pride's there, arrogant, but, you know, just the humility, the importance of humility and the attractiveness. How great to be in a church where humility is, is the name of the game rather than, than these things. And so I think we have a great humility just thinking this is who we were and we were slaves to it. There was no way out unless the Lord rescued us. And he did. And so now to go back to it is uh, certainly uh, ridiculous at best and um, just sinful. Yeah. So moving on, because um, we need to make some progress in this. Uh, verse five, he says, these people have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Avoid such people. And so again, it is entirely possible to have externally this this aura of, well, I'm a godly person. Um, and at root, though, it gets down to our hearts and what we love. Uh, one, of the, one of the commentators I read, I can't remember who it was, talks about there's a lot of this has to do with what we love. Um, and at the root of godliness is love for God, is, is a true love for God. Um, and for those who um, are just externally godly, but there's no true love. And you get around somebody long enough, you start to see where they're, what they love most, whether it's God, whether it's other stuff. Um, and Paul is saying, especially false teachers, uh, avoid such people. That's why we say avoid godless men. And then he says this, for among them are those who creep into households, capture weak women, burdened with sins, <clears throat> and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jans and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Thoughts on this, guys? Yeah, I was one, one pastor just said this about if you turn on Christian TV today and you watch a, a pastor, an average pastor on TV, he, he said this: eighty percent of what you see purporting to be Christianity will fall precisely into the categories that Paul is speaking about here. I just think that's crazy. He wrote this over 2,000 years ago, or 2,000 years ago or so, and that's what you see showing up today. The false teachers are just like this list. It's like the smiling teeth is what, what Alistair Begg said, and yet they have like just a bit of the truth, uh, but in, in order to, to just suck people into it. I think that's the, when I was talking to Mark about that, it's like they got a little bit of the truth. They're piggybacking with just a little bit of the truth in order to swing in the heresy to, to draw people in. But just thinking about the, uh, they have an appearance of godliness. Thinking about us though, it can be easy to work on externals. Like I'm going to put on a face and do this and that, but really we need to be cultivating that deep godliness internally there as well. Yeah, again, based on humility. And then look what I love this. And I had, this had escaped me until uh, this week, but um, verse 10 you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. And so what's our aim in life? You know, is it based on something about ourselves or is it to honor and glorify Christ? And so Paul boldly could say, follow me as I follow Christ. So his aim in life was single-minded, wholeheartedly following the Savior. And so very convicting on that, that, you know, can we say that? Do we want folks to follow us because we're so following Christ in that manner. Amen. So we could say then, if we want to get into verse 10, then um, verses 10 through 13, is kind of the opposite of verses one through nine. If we say verses one through nine is avoid godless men, verses 10 through 13 is follow godly men. Um, pretty simple point, but you know, Paul, again, as Jerry was saying, like you followed me, you've, 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 you know, imitated me, um, and all of that. And so if we want to avoid godless people, we need to follow godly people and, you know, look at people around you in this church, who you know, I mean, by God's grace, we, we see all of you growing, but as you consider um, your own life and the people that, that you're closest to, you know, ask God to help you see the qualities in them that's worth imitating. Um, we, we need to, to value Christian imitation if we want to put it that way. Um, and especially, I would say, in light of verse 12, when he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, we need to watch how other people suffer. We need to watch how other believers suffer. Um, you know, it's not something we, we, we talk about a lot, and it, it's kind of a related thing. Um, 
you know, Paul talks about, you know, we're, we're comforted so we can comfort others. But I think also, you know, what we go through in our suffering is what we can share with other people to help them. You know, we, when I was doing my campus ministry internship, this was way back um, over in Carrollton, Georgia, you know, Beck's first pregnancy ended in a, in a miscarriage. And, you know, that, that is a incredibly difficult thing to go through. Um, and the pastor of the church we were, we were members at at the time, him and his wife had actually had several miscarriages. Um, and so they were the perfect people at that time to encourage us. They had been through, they had suffered through that and we were able to learn from their suffering how we could suffer. Um, and so theirs was kind of something that had happened and then they were sharing the fruit of that. Um, but sometimes it'll actually be in the moment. Um, you know, we'll see other people going through things and while we want to be encouraging um, and all of that too, by God's grace, we can be an example to others of how to suffer well. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm just going to go to verse 14 because I was really helped by this from a commentary. But he, this is like the big imperative that he's pushing in 10 to 17 is verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. This is the big imperative. He's wanting him to continue on gospel ministry, continue clinging to the word. And he grounds this imperative in two things. One, remembering godly examples you've had. One is Paul's own example. And he, he talks about his grandmother and mother, like he's learned that from childhood. But the, the idea is having good mentors is exactly, Greg, what you're talking about. But Timothy had this privilege of having the apostle Paul as his mentor. I mean, what an incredible privilege to have seen his life up close and personal. And Paul's about to have his head chopped off. He's going to leave. And now he's worried about Timothy continuing on. But you think, Paul dies, and think about Timothy's life. I don't know how long he lived, but think about his life maybe a year, two years after. I mean, I think that he probably thought about the Apostle Paul every single day. He thought about Paul's life, Paul's teaching, his patience, his steadfastness, his suffering. I mean, think about, like Mark talk, told me about Acts 14 is when he was stoned. And Timothy would think about the stoning. Everybody thought he's dead, and then he, he's back up, and he's ready to keep going. I mean, that must have stilled him with, with courage, having this incredible example, or, or his hope, or steadfastness, whatever, his faith. So we need to have godly models, mentors in our life to, to help us, to strengthen us, that their memory will help push us on. And we have them, like you said, in our church. I think of Papa Fred, who, who's doing so much even now. Just when you read the list of the, all the guys he's discipling, it's yeah. so amazing in his 70s to be inspired by that. I want to be like Fred uh, as I grow older to, to do that. But not only just people in our midst, I would say church history. It's another plug for me to throw in church history. There's so many examples of people who have, who have finished well that we can go to. I mean, I, I think of, of George Mueller, who I mentioned already. Like, I think of a guy who had faith it's George Mueller. I mean, he had tremendous faith. But if I think about his life for a while, I could be moved by, especially when he lost his wife of almost 40 years, and just he so trusted God. I mean, just so, this is for my good. Like, I wouldn't want her back. Like, this is for my good. And like, that is strengthening to me and to my faith now. So we need godly mentors. But the second thing I would say is, one pastor said, we are modeling something to everybody that we interact with. We're modeling we're telling people what is most important about my life, especially our children. This goes back to our first session. What are we telling to our children that's most important to us? Are we modeling sort of laziness? Are we modeling like, oh, spiritual apathy? We don't really care that much. Or are we modeling genuine love for the Savior? Because we're, mo we're all models, and we want to be godly models, like you were saying, Jerry, like follow me as I follow Christ. That's what we want to be to, to others. Yeah, Papa came to my mind when, in, in this verse as well. Such a godly example and one that so many of us can can follow, all of us can. It brought me back to 2 Timothy 2, 2, back uh, one page there, that way you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there's those four generations there, Paul to Timothy, to faithful men to others. So we ought to all be looking, someone says, for a Paul, someone to look to, somebody like Papa, and we also ought to be looking for a Timothy, somebody to pour our life into so that they can then uh, share with um, faithful men who will be able to impact others. And so there's generations, and that's what I, I love about that church. This, our church here is I think that's happening. I want to pick up on something you said, Scott, um, you know, church history. Guys, we have an embarrassing amount of riches when it comes to uh, Christians throughout church history. Um, and their, their suffering and their, their testimonies and their stories. I mean, there are so many biographies. Scott is a lot better read in this. This is an area which I will confess I'm deficient in, um, is like reading good Christian biographies throughout church history. But there is so much there. 
from Christians who have struggled and suffered and overcome. Um, sometimes they overcome, as we'll see, as Paul talks about later, you know, their overcoming their suffering was through death and they enter into the presence of God. They won their victory that way. Um, other times God gives world, he gives mercy, worldly relief. Um, but there is so much that we can learn from. And what I have read, um, thinking of Charles Spurgeon, thinking of George Mueller, thinking of Jonathan Edwards and, and others, like the, the trials and the difficulties they went through. It's like, guess what? They, they weren't these superheroes with superpowers like we tend to think they were. They were people just like us who had the same fears we have, who had the same um, weaknesses that we had, who had the same desires for their family, for their ministry that, that we have. And we can see how they wrestled and how God was faithful. And it wasn't because they were so godly, but because God is so good. Um, and I think the more we immerse ourselves in good Christian biography, the more we, we see, uh, verse 14, you know, those whom we have learned from, the list gets bigger and bigger, and we have a lot more to learn. Um, all right, so let, let's move on in verse uh, 15. He says, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's another way of saying the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed or breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Um, so when it comes to the centrality of the Bible, we could say verses 14 through 16, if you wanted to have a, a, a kind of a heading there, it's continuing God's word. Um, continuing God's word. Think about what Paul's saying. First, um, the scriptures do what? They make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. That's why no matter where we are in the scriptures, we do our best to accurately and faithfully point people to Jesus. Because the whole Bible testifies to the fact that Jesus is the eternal son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the seed of the woman that God promised all the way back in Genesis 3. He is the one. So from beginning to end, the Bible is testifying to the salvation that's in Christ. And Paul clearly says that. It makes us wise for that so that we understand it. Uh, verse 16, he goes on to say, all scripture, all of it is breathed out by God and profitable. Now, this is an important point because, you know, in Baptist circles, as you know, especially Southern Baptist Convention, but, but other Baptist circles, there's been a battle for the Bible, if you want to put it that way, and more liberal, moderate scholars will look at verse 16 and they will actually twist what this verse is saying to try to make a point that, well, some of the Bible's inspired, but not all of the Bible. Um, and they will say the way you should interpret this is that um, every scripture breathed out by God is profitable. They change it. So, did you catch the subtle shift there? All scripture that's breathed out by God is profitable, meaning there's scripture that's inspired and there's scripture that's not inspired. And so basically they do that so they can reject the parts of the Bible they don't like, like the blood atonement of Jesus, you know, the sovereignty of God and, and a lot of other things. Um, but you can't do that grammatically in the Greek. It's all scripture is breathed out by God. So it's like not some of it, all of it is. And all of it is what Paul says. It's profitable. There is no part of the Bible that is unprofitable for us as believers. Now, if you've read through uh, following the Bible reading plan, you've been in Leviticus and Numbers. That, th those are the two places probably that stop more good intentioned Bible readers in their tracks than any other places. Because um, you get through Genesis, yes, creation of the world, um, Abraham, the call, Joseph, we get to Exodus, um, God, you know, Red Sea, wilderness, Ten Commandments, and then right after the Ten Commandments, laws. And you're going as hard as you can, you're excited, and then it's just like you hit a, a like deep mud and it slows you down. Let me just encourage this. Leviticus and Numbers is profitable for you. It might not be as easy to study as other parts. We'll admit that. Um, not, not too many of us get excited about lists um, and laws. You should do this. You shall do this. If you do this, this will happen. If you do this, you do this. You know, this is the measurements. This is, you know, this many of this and that many of that. Like, it might not be the most exciting in terms of your personality. It's not for me. 
Um, you know, I don't want to say I cheat on this, but I listen to it with my Bible app. It's a little easier to get through. If I'm staring at a page, I might fall asleep. But if I listen to it, I actually get through it better and I actually pay attention. So find a way to do it. But it's profitable. And what is it profitable for based on what Paul says? Four things. For teaching, which is instruction, for reproof, for correction. That means when we're wrong, it shows us, it tells us that we're wrong, and then it shows us how to be right in light of being wrong. And for training in righteousness, for training in righteousness for this reason, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Thoughts? Yeah, I just want to real quick go back and just mention his, the childhood verse, verse 15, and then we'll come hammering this scripture part. Verse 15, and how from childhood you have been equated with the sacred writings. I think he's talking about the grandmother Lois and, and, and Eunice. Uh, and it's just, if I've said this in the first one, I think if you grew up with this type of upbringing with even just one parent who was a believer, an incalculable gift of God to you. Now, if you didn't, I would say, try to be by God's grace that for your children in the future. Try to be that for your children because you will give your, your children an incalculable gift if you raise them with the word. D.A. Carson, in that sermon that Mark sent, he said his earliest memory is his dad giving him a bath, teaching him the storyline of the Bible. I mean, what an incredible thing that is. His father is giving this, this incredible gift. So if you had that, oh, what a gift. And I thought about John Piper. His mom was not a theologian at all, but she loved the Word of God, and she had a huge impact on John Piper because his dad was gone as evangelist two-thirds of the year. And Piper said this. He said, uh, what I owe my mother for my soul and my love to Christ and my role as a husband and father and pastor is incalculable. She stamped me more than anybody in the world. There's just no doubt about it. Just encouragement for moms who may think, I don't know the Bible well enough. Well, just be a godly example for your children. And oh my goodness, a piper could rise up and call you blessed in the future. Like just the influence of this godly woman who maybe didn't know the Bible as well as Piper certainly does now, but just encouragement to all parents to just be godly examples. Then you get into the, the word of God. One commentator said, every book, every passage is God breathed. Every genre, prose, poetry, history, and ethics is God's word. So I would say, this is the greatest earthly possession that we can own. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we know that. We, we would agree with that. But are, do we live like that is, is the question. But I, I think of uh, John Gershner does an interview with, with R.C. Sproul. And Gershner was an intense man. And, but I love this interview because there's a tender side of Gershner that comes out in this interview. And that's why, I think that's why I love it. And he's still got the intensity at points in that interview. Uh, but he talks about the grace of God. He can hardly talk. It's, it's powerful. But then he talks about the Bible, and he pulls out this little bitty Bible that he's got in his pocket, this little white Bible. And he said, he goes, I know that this is the Word of God. Uh, I know that is an orthodox doctrine, you see. He said, I've written books about, about it. He said, but all I got to do is I reach in, and I grab it, and I open it every day. He said, I know when I open this book, it is God speaking to me every day. Like this, it's self-authenticating when, when we go to the Bible. So we should Again, we should spend time soaking in, in the Word. One guy said we should read it slowly, carefully, prayerfully, meditatively, with a resolve to believe and act on whatever we learn. And just a quick reminder, we know this, but why do missionaries spend years translating this? I talk about Cameron Townsend, who went to Guatemala, where my wife is from. She went in, he went in 1920s. I think he was 21 years old. He started handing out Bibles in uh, Antigua, I think. And then there was Kachikel Indians came, and they, they said, well, you know, what about for us? Like, does is, is God speak to us? And he just... He ended up going there with his wife, lived with the Kachigel. Ten years of his life he invested to translate the Bible. It's like, why? Because it's God's word. It's God breathed uh, that we would value it as such. And that's how we're equipped. You know, verse 17, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Thoroughly equipped. And uh, I, I think about it, it's football season. All year round it's football season in my mind, but it is now officially... <laughs> football season, and you never see on the opening kickoff a bunch of guys that forgot their helmet. That'd be crazy. They're not going to do that. That's not being equipped for the game. But we, and I'm guilty of this, so often go into the day without my spiritual helmet on, without my equipment that's needed to face all that's going to be faced, because we know in verse 12, those who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. There's going to be trials each day, and we need the Word of God that is never going to leave us higher percent success rate, thoroughly equipped. I want to go back to, uh, to verse 16 before we move into chapter 4. I would be remiss if I did not uh, camp out on this <clears throat> briefly. When Paul says all Scripture is breathed out by God, he, he does what he's done in a couple of other, other places. He actually creates a new word. 
The word in Greek is theanoustos. It's take, you know, God and nuestos, um, you know, pneuma, Holy Spirit, breath. So God breathed, God exhaled, if you want to put it that way. Um, and what, what that means is, is that the Bible alone carries that quality. No other book in the world is God-breathed. Therefore, no other book carries the power, the authority that the Bible carries. When we say we believe in the authority of the Bible, we believe in the authority of the Bible because when we read it, God is speaking. John Stott said it this way uh, in his book, I think it was Between Two Worlds. Um, he said, pre, when, when we read the Bible, hold on, let me make sure I get this right. No, all right, back up. God speaks through what he's already spoken. Um, and so just because it was a book written over thousands of years and finished 2,000 years ago doesn't mean that God spoke then and he's not speaking now. Uh, because it is God who breathed this book out, he still speaks through it today, which is why we preach the way we do, why we, you know, we talked about this last week about exposition and working through things, because God still speaks through what he has spoken. But this also gets to the issue of the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to believe that the Bible is inspired by God. It's another thing to believe the Bible is inerrant. It is both of those things absolutely true. But the biggest issue of our day is the sufficiency of Scripture. There's a lot of people who will say, yeah, Bible's inspired and inerrant, but they do not treat the Bible as though it's sufficient. If it is God's word, then it is God's perspective on everything. Whatever God says, it is God's perspective on that. There is no higher perspective. There is no higher vantage point, viewpoint, point of looking at things than what God says in his word. It is definitive and authoritative on the most important issues that we will ever have to face, think about, and that, because the Bible can't help there. That is to undercut our trust in God's ability to help us through his word. First Peter says he's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Where do we get that? We get it in this book. Why? Because only this book is God-breathed. Only this book is God-breathed. And remember, God exhaled. When you talk, you're exhaling. So when you read the Bible, God is speaking. So this book is enough for you. It is enough for me. It is enough for the church. It gives us everything we need to endure until Jesus comes back. Um, so accept it that way. Defend it that way. Don't lessen your trust in the Bible as though there's other things out there that are more sufficient for you to help you walk with Jesus. I'm just going to yeah. ask Jerry one, one question. This never works, but uh, i try to ask you a question on this. What I've, I've appreciated about you, and I was talking to Mark about this, how you often are just reminding us about just preaching the Bible, like getting the Bible before people, getting the Bible before people. You're always pushing that. And I remember Grant and Josh were talking to you one time about the Bible, and you were just saying, you know, keep running the fullback up the middle, I think, is what you, is the, what you used, meaning just keep going to the Bible. And I've just loved that. I've appreciated about, that, about you so much about how you just love the Word, and you're always pushing us to, to do the Word. Any thoughts on that, or did your parents instill that? Anything on that? Of I know I've talked about this before, but dad did, mom and dad both. Uh, mom, um, when we were little, certainly reading Bible stories continually, but dad, every night before we would go to bed, TV would be on, whatever, and, uh, and, he, and he'd say, let's shelf TV and have devotions. So we would spend that five, seven, ten minutes all kneel down, and uh, you couldn't hear what anybody was praying because we were all <laughs> muffled by the, whatever cushion we were sitting on. And so I, I bet you they were praying for us, but I don't really know for sure. But it was just, and so I love my dad dearly. He loved the word. So I love the word. You know, it was kind of, it, it was just a natural thing. And, and Scott, I think in answer to your question, how couldn't we? It's a hundred percent success rate. What else are we going to do? We can't use our own emotions. Those lie to us. We certainly can't trust society or what you word psychology or all the nonsense. We got to just go straight back to what we know is going to be um, thoroughly equipping for every good work. We're not short on anything when we have God's word. So to meditate therein day and night. These two verses sum up, I think, Psalm 19, Psalm 119. If you were getting a brief summary, these two verses uh, are it. And I remember, uh, Mark, when I, I used my old NIV study Bible from, from 1984, Mark signed this 
Uh, they all the seniors signed that Bible death. So uh, I, I hopefully can pray for them when I, when I see that if I'm, if I'm reading it. And Mark signed 4-2, preached the word when he was a senior in high school. And wow, has he done that and just made such an impact um, on all of us because I think he's convinced of 3, 16, and 17. Mm. All right, so I think what we're going to do, because we have just a couple minutes, I want to start into chapter 4 to kind of get our, our wheels, the wheels turning on this. Uh, we won't be able to exhaust it by any means, but next week we'll be able to finish up in chapter 4 and finish the book. But let's look at verse 1. This, if, if you want to charge someone with um, a weighty task, keep on qualifications to that task. I mean, you think about um, different things in history like, you know, the, 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 what was it called? The Continental Army uh, fighting the British. Like they were charged with helping preserve this new republic that we were, that, the, that was being formed. You think of um, World War I, the, the American Expeditionary Unit is what it was called, comes in, you know, a charge to what? bring an end to the stalemate, take the fight to the enemy and bring this war to an end. That's exactly what they did. Think of the charge that was given to our armed forces like in World War II. Um, we're fighting against, you know, an imperialist threat in, in, in the Pacific and one of the most um, insane, maniacal dictators the world has ever known in Adolf Hitler. So you think of charging people, listen, the task before you is a big deal. And all of those things, as important as they are and as weighty as they are for us as citizens in this country, they pale in comparison to what Paul adds to his charge to Timothy. Think about the weightiness of this. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. If he just stopped there, that would be enough. So everything I'm about to say is before God and before Jesus, the ultimate in the universe. No one more important, more significant than God in Christ. So I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. So in, in light of the one who is going to judge all people, the false teachers, Timothy, who you yourself, Timothy, will stand before um, in, and be judged by, and by his appearing, his second coming, his kingdom that will rule over all. You can't get a more weighty, uh, sobering charge than this. And all of that Paul brings to bear, as, as has already been said, on this one exhortation, preach the word. Preach the word. Every time we open up this book to preach it and teach it. We do it in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. That is all that is underneath this, around this, over this, every time we open up this book. Um, and again, we, not to, to say it too much, but that's why we take preaching seriously here. That's why we, we preach the way we do. Because we will give an account to the God who's going to judge everything who's going to overthrow this world and set up a kingdom that will never end. Everything we do when we open our mouths with the word of God is in reference to that. And you can't get more weighty or significant than that every time you preach. Any thoughts on that as we, as we close? Look forward to next week. Amen. So let, hopefully that kind of whets your appetite for where we're going. Um, so let's, let's close in prayer and then we'll be done. Uh, Father, we thank you, Lord, for this evening. Thank you, God, for this, these few minutes to open up your word. Lord, take what all that we've said. Um, Lord, everything that, that um, has been faithful to your word, and I trust by your grace that's been all of it. Um, Lord, that, uh, take it and use it in our lives to help us uh, be conformed to Christ um, and to bear fruit uh, for him um, in our homes and our jobs. Uh, Lord, everywhere we go, uh, Lord, may we be more and more, as Paul says elsewhere, the savor of Christ, the aroma of Christ. God, because we are better rooted in your word. Uh, Lord, help us to be a people ready for suffering because persecution will come. Um, hard times are around us. Uh, maybe we're not experiencing it yet, but we will at some point, all of us in one way or another. God, help us continue in the word. Help us stay close to the scriptures. 
God, help us receive them as your infallible and errant and sufficient word with all authority. Um, And Lord, help us be a good example to others. And Lord, help us be quick to look to others in this church as examples of how to walk with you, how to suffer. And Lord, help us all take seriously this charge that every time we open up the word officially um, through, through teaching of the church, but also, Lord, anytime we are sharing the word with someone else, God, we do it in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and by his kingdom. Lord, may we always take it seriously, this precious book that you've given us and the power and the life and the, the, the hope for the future that is in it. So God, we just commit ourselves and our, our path for the next week to you um, in light of all that we've looked at. We pray this in Jesus' name.